All right, church, how's everybody doing this morning? Hope you all are doing well. Hope you're having a good November. We're right around the corner to celebrating Thanksgiving, which is always, always a great holiday. If you're like me, you get pretty excited for the, the wonderful food that we're all about to get to share together. Uh, it's, a, it's a guilty pleasure to be able to just go ahead and feast together. And I, I will tell you that uh, aside from looking forward to Thanksgiving, I was thinking about some of the just guilty pleasures that Jennifer and I have in life. And I think one of the ones that we would point to when it comes to entertainment uh, that I will unashamedly admit this morning is that we've always kind of been a suckers for reality TV. Can I get an amen? Anybody else out there fans of reality TV? I think it's part of being a product of the 90s in some ways and getting exposed to, to real world and all these crazy shows that kind of launch reality TV into an existence. And I'll be the first to admit it's an oxymoron because we know that every time we watch reality TV, it's anything but reality. It's contrived, it's scripted, it's influenced, all those different things. But we still watch it, man. We're, we're suckers for it. And when you think about some of the ones that we watch most consistently, I don't know exactly which one we would rate as our favorite, but probably near the top of the list would be Survivor. Anybody, anybody here a fan of Survivor? All right, we got some Survivor fans out there. If you haven't seen Survivor, we're praying for you, and I'll be happy to visit with you after the service to try to correct the error of your ways. Uh, but we, we love that show, and we've watched it for quite a long time. If you haven't seen it, it's essentially they gather up these groups of, of strangers, people from all different walks of life, different ages, different backgrounds, and they drop them in some remote place, usually an island of some sort, and they give them a chance to survive, not just the elements, but they have these competitions, they divide them in tribes, you have a, a social game, a physical game, a strategic game, and you end up possibly getting voted off the island. And so if you're the last one there, then you win half a million, million dollars, can't remember what the prize is now, and you're the sole survivor. So we love this show. It, it has been a source of consistent entertainment for, for our marriage for quite some time. And I tell you that because about five years ago, we had some friends from California that called us up and said they were coming in town for a charity dinner in Dallas and were curious if they could stay with us while they were, while they were passing through. And we hadn't seen them in a long time, so we were very excited to, to have a chance to have them come into our home and just to catch up with them. And uh, they were gracious enough, though, to extend an invitation to us to join them at the charity dinner. So having a chance to get kind of dressed up, going to Dallas, we're like, man, that'll be fun too. But what really took our excitement level from here to hear was when they told us that the guest speaker at this charity event was going to be Jeff Probst, the host of Survivor. And so we go to this charity dinner and we're sitting there and of course Jeff's the main speaker and he does a great job. But what was really cool about the evening was he took some time just to kind of go stand off to the side, let people come up and, and visit with him and talk with him and all those different things. So we actually had a chance to talk with Jeff Probst about Survivor. And so we got a picture with him you know, as we were talking with him, there it is right there. And this was kind of our, our moment of like the peak of the evening, but really probably for at least a week or a month. Man, we got this picture and we plastered it everywhere. I mean, we were on social media, we were texting friends, everybody that we thought would be interested. We would send it, even those that we thought wouldn't be interested, we sent it to them too. And we were just so excited that we got to meet Jeff Prost. And so we kind of started doing the whole name dropping thing, right? You know, it was just kind of one of those things where we'd joke and we'd be like, oh, let me call my friend Jeff, see what happens this week on this episode. And we just, we really loved the fact that we had met Jeff Prost. And so it really did kind of become the pinnacle in some ways of our name dropping career, I guess, as a married couple. You guys know folks that do a lot of name dropping? You ever been around those sorts of conversations? People just kind of casually slip in some sort of famous person or well-known person to try to, try to impress people. That, that's really what the whole practice of name dropping is, is, you, is this casual reference 
to somebody that is considered to be important or influential to try to assign more importance to yourself, to try to impress somebody. What's ironic about name dropping is that a lot of times it has the opposite effect. It's not typically impressive, it's usually annoying in some respects. Hopefully I didn't annoy you with my reference to Jeff this morning, but, but it is. It kind of can be counterintuitive that it doesn't always impress people, and yet we still do it. A lot of times we, we can't help but mention these, these folks, these celebrities, these important people or, or people that we know that we think carry certain influence. We just can't help but reference them. And yet what's interesting is that there are other situations that we have the direct opposite thought process of people that we know. Like there are some uh, loyalties or admirations or associations that we have in life that we don't want anyone to know, that we conceal and we hide and we, we're hesitant to share. I think the, the political season in this recent election is, is a good example of what you often find. I had numerous conversations with family and friends that would be quick to say, you know, I don't really tell people who I vote for, I keep that stuff private. And one of the reasons is because we know that in this climate where things are so volatile and we have a very sharp divide between two political parties and things like that, you're really kind of taking a risk when you say something about who you support that the other person you're talking to may not be in agreement with you and it could, it could create a negative response. And so rather than risk that, I'll just keep it quiet. I'm not gonna share anything, I'm gonna conceal it. Because in that situation, if I reference a candidate or a party or a name, then that might diminish how people see me. So you see the, the thread, right? You see the theme that whether we're going to reference somebody that we think is going to increase our importance in this celebrity or somebody that we're afraid is gonna diminish our importance. What's really driving both scenarios is our desire and our natural inclination to seek the approval of others, right? That, that's really kind of what it is at its core, subconsciously. There's, there's something that is intuitive and instinctive us to, to want the approval of others, so much so that it influences who we acknowledge and who we don't. Who, who we name drop and who we refer to and who we keep hidden and who we keep concealed. And the Bible's pretty clear that the pursuit of the approval of others is a slippery slope, right? That that's not exactly what should be a determining factor in how we live our lives. And so the natural question for us this morning is then what about Jesus? What about our relationship to him? How do we acknowledge Jesus in the relationships that we have with others? Is he somebody that we're quick to reference, to point out to, this is who he is, this is how I met him, this is why I love him, this is why I want you to know him, or are we more hesitant and we keep that relationship more concealed because we're not sure how others might feel if we bring it up? How do we respond and what approval are we really seeking? Are we seeking the approval of others or are we seeking the approval of God? I think that the passage today is gonna to bring this question front and center. And it's an important one that we always have to ask. Now, the, the hope for us this morning is that it leads us to a place to remember that we should always declare the praises, the love, and the loyalty of our King Jesus. Right? There's, there's never a time that we should be ashamed of those things. That if we look around all of creation itself and see the creation groans to declare the greatness and the lordship of our God, then so should we? And so today we get a passage that helps us get a greater understanding of what that might look like. So grab your Bibles. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 10. We've been working through this discourse to guide us through the, the theme of missions and 
uh, October and November as we've thought about how is it that we engage the community and the world around us. And it's been a great guide because this is a time in the gospel where Jesus is sending out his disciples and he's had a lot of different instructions that he's given them. Most recently, we, we had a chance to kind of give a, a thorough discourse into persecution, resistance, right? Hostility and how those things are, are likely to occur, that it's a, it's a path of suffering. Jesus gives an explanation as to why it's going to occur. And then most recently, over the last two weeks, we talked about the three different reasons as to why he's telling his disciples that they don't need to be afraid, right? That, that you don't need to fear. You can be unafraid for all these different reasons. And so now that he has offered up the rationale and the reasoning for his disciples to move forward with a fearlessness and, and to not be afraid, we now get a picture of what that fearlessness looks like. What, what does the unafraid disciple do? How, how does that person live? What does that courage look like as we seek to follow him. And that's what Jesus begins to describe. So follow along with me in chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus continues and says, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. This is a tough text, and yet it's one of my favorites. But, but there's no doubt about it that this is a moment where Jesus is, is pretty much laying it all on the line. He's, he's given a pretty clear picture of what it looks like to follow him. And he, he begins to paint this image by giving us this contrast using these words of acknowledge and disown. And, and I want to make sure that we have a clear understanding of what those words mean. If you think about acknowledging, it, to, to, to me, a lot of times when we use that in our context, that's a little bit more casual. Right? I kind of picture like running into people at the store and saying hi, you know, acknowledging that I see you waving, giving a little head nod. And, and we all know that there are some times that we're in a store or something, we don't have time for the small talk and we kind of like hide our eyes and we move away or something like that. So it's, it's a lot of times this kind of casual greeting or affiliation that we often assign with that word acknowledging. But, but that doesn't even come close to the depth of what the word actually means and what Jesus is using here. But the word acknowledge means to confess allegiance. That's what he means with acknowledging. This is, this is not enough to say, yeah, I saw Jesus teaching one day on the hillside. Yeah, I was there when he performed the miracle uh, of the blind man. This, this is, no, I follow him. My allegiance, my loyalty is to him. He is king. He is Lord. That's the sort of acknowledgement that Jesus is defining and describing here. So the contrast is if that's the one option, then the other option is to disown Jesus. And, and that's a really harsh word as well. It means a verbal renunciation, a, a denial of Jesus. And so he's really kind of given us these two extremes. And what stands out to that from my perspective is that there is no middle ground, right? There's not like a third option. Or you could kind of have the best of both worlds and kind of casually affiliate with him when it's convenient for you, but then you can kind of keep it secret when it's not. There, there is no middle ground. Right? What Jesus is saying is that you're either confessing 
allegiance to me or you've disowned me. There is no middle ground. It's one or the other. And so I wonder, where do you live your life? Right? Where, where do you find yourself? Do you find yourself consistently confessing that full-hearted allegiance to Christ? Or I think a lot of times, many of us fall victim to trying to live in the middle. Right? That, that yes, we want to be associated. Yes, we want to acknowledge him in, in a casual way. But are we really able and consistently continually living our lives in such a way where we demonstrate that full-hearted allegiance. I know, I know for me, that was part of my testimony. That was part of my story, was a life that was trying to live in the middle. I grew up in a Christian home. I was going to church. So I, I knew the importance of Jesus. I knew the importance of the Bible and those stories. I knew the, the Sunday school answers. So by the time I got to 10, yeah, I, I prayed to have Jesus come into my life. I prayed that prayer at a camp, and I meant it. I mean, you, you talk to a 10-year-old about being saved from sin so that you can go to heaven. Who wouldn't want that? And I wanted it. I was sincere in it. But what I realized over the next several years as I moved through adolescence and into my, my high school years was that what I really wanted was all the grace but none of the loyalty, right? What I thought it meant to, to believe in Jesus was really just to believe that he existed, that if I died or he came back, I would be able to say, yeah, I believe you lived and died on the cross and and so now I get to go to heaven, that I could get that casual acknowledgement of believing in his existence so that I could still live my life however I wanted. I thought that was all that was required of me. And so what really began to transform my life when I got to the age of 16 was realizing, man, it's impossible to find Jesus as Savior and not find him as Lord. What he wants is us to surrender to his kingship, to his lordship. He wants us to confess allegiance. We cannot just try to live somewhere in the middle, right? And so, so Jesus puts that contrast in front of us, and then he assigns a very clear importance with that choice. The reason we need to ask ourselves continually what my relationship looks like with Christ, what our relationship looks like with Christ, am I truly living in the middle? Am I truly giving him the sort of allegiance and, and uh, loyalty and admiration and, and surrender that he deserves? The reason we need to ask that question so continually and take it so seriously is because it determines everything about eternity for us. You see what Jesus attaches to it? If you acknowledge me, then I'll acknowledge you before my Father. If you disown me, I'll disown you before my Father. What we see is that relationship with Jesus Christ has undeniable consequences for our eternal destiny. You can't get around it. It is a consistent teaching of scripture. This is just one of several other examples. Acts 4.12, you have Peter saying, there is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. All of, of our, all of humanity's, not just us, all of humanity's existence and its place in eternity is answered and determined by our relationship with Jesus. And so we need to ask ourselves that question. Do I truly confess that sort of allegiance as I should. And we need to ask that question continually, almost on a daily basis. But I wanna take it a step further this morning. As much as I do want us to evaluate our own personal ability to acknowledge Jesus and to confess our love and our allegiance and our loyalty to him, I also want us to, to recognize that if it is that important, if relationship to Christ is, is so important to the 
overall plan of everyone else's eternity and their place in the kingdom, then what about all those who have not yet confessed a love and a devotion to Christ? What about all those people that, that don't have that understanding of who Jesus is? If it's that important to their life, to their future, to their place in eternity, are we living with the sort of urgency to make sure that they have a chance to hear the hope by which all people will be saved? Do we care? That's a question I think we really need to answer, a question we really need to evaluate. And honestly, I mean, only, only you can answer that for yourself, right? I can't answer that for you. The levels to which you're concerned for those that don't have an opportunity to know Jesus, how does that impact you? How does that govern your decisions, your day, your relate? I don't know. But I do think we can spend some time and maybe zoom out a little bit and say, well, maybe if we can't answer it individually today, let's talk about it collectively. What do we see from the church? Not just our church, but holistically, the church around the world, the body of Christ. Do we seem to be demonstrating a care, demonstrating a care and concern for those who have not yet had a chance to acknowledge Jesus because they don't know him? I think we should consider some of those things. And in order to do this, I wanna give you some context uh, I come from a missions background, right? I, I love this time of year. I love this sort of emphasis. When I was 16, that was what I really felt like God was calling me to do, was go overseas, to be a missionary at some point, and that was really what I kind of set a course upon. I, I went to seminary and got an intercultural studies degree. I was a missions pastor for almost eight years before coming here. I, I love uh, that world. And when you begin to kind of dive into that world, uh, you learn some terminology, you learn some context as you try to figure out the best way to go about, go about reaching others for Christ. And so I want to give you some of that terminology in case you haven't been exposed to it. But I want to start with teaching you about this, this phrase, unreached people groups. Uh, and so let me break that down for you. A people group is going to be a way that we classify groups of people around the world. It used to be that we just looked at countries. But as you know, countries are filled with people of different backgrounds and languages and customs and cultures. And so you can't just look at countries, you really have to look at people groups. And so a people group is going to be a cluster of people that share a common language, share a common culture, share common worldviews, so that the gospel can easily move within that people group, if that makes sense, without hitting too many barriers, right? A barrier would be language, right? If I, if I try to go uh, to, to China and share the gospel, but I don't speak Mandarin, that's going to be a barrier, right? And that's an indicator that I'm from a different people group than others. Does that make sense? So you have people groups. And I believe uh, the estimates are, but from a lot of research, that we're probably in 13, 14,000 people groups around the world. Unreached is going to be when people begin to classify these people groups, they will then evaluate what sort of presence of Christianity exists within that people group. Is it significant? Is it minimal? If it is less than 2%, if less than 2% of that population, that people group, professes to be Christian, then it will be classified as unreached, okay? And the reason is, is that because it's such a small number, it seems that it would be very unlikely for the gospel to begin to really take root and flourish in that region, in that people group, without some sort of outside missional assistance, okay? So you have all these regions of the world or all these people groups around the world that are considered unreached. Let me refer to my statistics here. I believe it's 6,741 unreached people groups in the world today. Now, what does that really account for? What, what does that really equate to? That's about 3.14 billion people, 42.2% of the world's population. 
And you can, you can really kind of get a sense of, of where a concentration of these unreached people groups are. A lot of missiologists have, have looked at the world and they see that there's an area of the world where it's predominantly focused. I actually brought a picture of a map today. This, that area of red, right, that you see kind of spreading across the central part of the, of the globe is, is known as the 1040 window. It, it carries a high concentration of unreached people groups. And so when we think about that as context, what I want you to hear today is we're talking about 3.14 billion people who have yet had the chance or opportunity to confess a love and allegiance to Jesus. Do we care? Or is it just an interesting topic of conversation, a statistic that we reference? Do we care? I think we'd all say, well, of course we care. Yeah, absolutely. But how do we demonstrate that care and that concern? Do we? demonstrate that care and concern. Well, let's consider our abilities to demonstrate that concern. Let's think about manpower, global church. Uh, If you look at global Christianity, most estimates would point to about 900 churches per unreached people group. So we could like divide up in teams of 900 and focus in on an unreached people group. So we've got the manpower, right? So what happens is that churches do, they send people out, they send missionaries out into the world and collectively uh, statistics would point to around 400,000 missionaries that have been sent around all over the world. Listen to where they go though. When you look at the the mission force and how people are typically choosing where to go and where people are often being sent, 77% of the 400,000 missionaries around the world are going to Christianized people groups or countries. So places where the gospel already exists and already flourishes. About 19% are going to places where the gospel exists, the church is there, but there's still a good chunk of folks that are unevangelized or lost. Only 3.3% go to unreached people groups. So we have the manpower. It seems like we've lost a little bit of our focus. So do we care? Well, again, I think we could say, well, gosh, you know, Jeremiah, that's kind of hard. I mean, that's, those are hard places to live. Some places it's very dangerous. That's it's a big ask to think that we can get all these people to this place. Maybe there are other ways that we can demonstrate our care and our concern for these people that have yet to confess and acknowledge who Jesus is. What, what if we just helped resource the efforts there? What if we could give money to things like Bible translation and local churches and pastors and, and materials? and maybe, maybe there's a way we can just send some of our financial support to help those folks. And I would say, man, that's a great idea. We should consider that. And so let's look. Let's see if that's something we've done. When you look at some of the the accumulative wealth of global Christianity, estimates are that Christians give around $700 billion. $700 billion, it's a lot. 92% of it goes for in-house local ministries. 92%, and again, I'm not complaining about that. There's logic behind it because you take care of each other, you take care of your community. But what ends up happening is you get about 2.9% that goes towards missions and 0.001% that goes to unreached people groups. One statistic that I found said that for every $100,000 a Christian makes, $1 goes to unreached people groups. (laughs) So do we care? Well, again, it's extreme, right? It's it's across the world. Man, even giving money to organizations that I don't really know, is it really going to be used the way it needs to be used? That's a really a hard ask. Aren't there other ways that we can reach the nations that are more effective and more strategic? And I'd say absolutely, especially in a globalized world. 
especially in a country like the United States where we have folks from all over the world living among us, tons of people from different cultures and backgrounds. Wouldn't it make sense that, that we engage them while they're here? In fact, I would almost say in some ways, God has looked upon us and said, okay, fine, you won't go there. I'll send them to you, right? And we have all these opportunities to engage. You've got refugees, you've got people from immigrating in from different countries. Let's think about international students, right? Students from, from different countries that are coming here to study college. What a, what a great strategy that would be. Think about it, folks are coming here and they're studying for maybe four years, five years, six years. You have a chance to, to love them, share the gospel with them, and then they actually possibly find Jesus and go back to their home country as more effective missionaries than we ever would be. And you know what's interesting? 62% of international students come from the 1040 window. What a brilliant strategy. But you know what? Only 10% of them are impacted, engaged from local Christian ministries. In fact, almost 80% of international students will return to their home country having never been invited into an American home. So do we care? Okay, I get it. Not everybody's called to cross-cultural ministry, right? It's a, it's a, it's a leap, it's hard. We've got a lot of other opportunities to engage people that haven't confessed and acknowledged Jesus Christ, right? We've, we can do it in a lot of different areas like Kevin and April pointed out. We've got people that we're going to class with, people that we're going to school with, people that we work with, people that we, we live right next door to. We've got all these different opportunities within our families, our peer groups, our friends. So surely we can just focus there. That's, that's our people group. It's easier, it's more natural. Can, can we just do that there? Sure, absolutely we should. Of course we need to focus on those in our own midst who have yet to confess and acknowledge the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Here's the problem. According to LifeWay Research, 55% of church-going Christians have not shared with anyone about what it means to have a relationship with Christ in the last six months. Only 10% of believers, church-going believers, share with somebody about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus once a month. So do we care? I mean, only you can answer that for yourself, but when we stop and look collectively, man, it's hard to point to what we're doing to demonstrate that care. So why is that? What, what, what's happened? I think part of it is maybe expectation and understanding what it is that Jesus is called to. There's this great quote from, from Junior Hill, a, a famous pastor who was talking about Jesus extending this call to the disciples and saying, if you come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, right? And, and he used that reference and he said, if we're not fishing, we're not following. And you think about how ingrained that is to the message of Jesus here in chapter 10, he's sending the disciples out. It was part of the call originally. It's part of the great commission. There's no doubt that part of what we need to see is that the way in which we demonstrate following Jesus is to go and share that love to every person, place, and people around the world. And so if that's not happening, the natural conclusion is, well, then maybe we're not following as well as we thought we should. So where do we get off? Like, where, where, do, we, where do we take that wrong turn? And if I were to, to venture a guess for us to consider this morning, I would probably point to expectations. Right, that maybe our expectations of what it means to follow Jesus are not exactly what it means to follow Jesus. And I think that was the same issue facing the disciples at this point in this story. 
I mean, here's what I love about what happens next. After Jesus lays that contrast out between acknowledging and disowning, he says, do not suppose that I come, came here to bring peace, but a sword. And he, he starts talking about the persecution again, which we've already talked about. I'm not going to go back into all those details today. But he, he brings up again how it's going to be hostile, even within, the own, within your own home. But, but what is he doing? What I love about what he's saying here is the way it begins when he says, do not suppose. What he's challenging here are the disciples' expectations. Right? See, they had an idea, they had an understanding, an image of what it meant to follow the Messiah. The Messiah was going to be someone that brought political peace, material prosperity, right? An earthly kingdom. And they were walking with this expectation. And Jesus said, your expectations are off. You're not going to find peace on this journey. You're going to find hardship. You're going to find suffering. You're going to find something very Different. I wonder if you and I are in a similar place, or maybe we've somehow subconsciously given into this idea that following Jesus, confessing allegiance to Jesus, really does lead to a life of tranquility and comfort and convenience. And so we think we're following, we think we're acknowledging, and yet we're going in the wrong direction. We're not demonstrating the care and the concern for the people around us the same way that Jesus has challenged us to. So what's happening there? I think what happens is that we find this this desire for his grace, but we also have this desire for these dreams, these ambitions, this comfort, this tranquility, this peace, this comfortable life. And what's really happening is we're having competing loves, (laughs) right? A love for Jesus who offers us all this great stuff, this hope, this forgiveness, but also I love all these other things that I want to do with life. I've got all these dreams, got all these plans, got all these things I want to do to make sure my life is the way I've always wanted it to be and comfortable to be. And we've got these competing loves. And so Jesus challenges that. And he gives us a very hard teaching to, to really evaluate just how much do we truly love him. It's not enough just to love him. Do we love him supremely? Right, so he, he uses this example of the family. He, he brings it back to the fray and he says, Listen, even if you love your father more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love your children more than me, you're not worthy of me. Let's be very clear. That word means deserving. And I've said it to you before. It's not that we earn God's grace or we earn his salvation, but there's also no mistake of what sort of commitment and love and devotion he is desiring from us. And it is that supreme love and commitment. The word love here is really a term of loyalty and commitment. And he's asking, which, which one's governing your life? Which one's governing your thoughts? I, I think about that from my own stage of life. I realize a lot of us are in different stages of life, but I think about that, that part in particular that talks about loving your children more than me. That's a hard teaching. You know how easy it is for me as a father and how many times I've had conversations with peers that would seem to demonstrate that what typically governs our life is this question where we always asking ourselves as parents, man, what's best for my kids? And how often are we asking that? And is that the question we should, we should be asking as opposed to, hey, what's best for Christ? Right? It's that competing love. Who do you love most supremely? It's a hard teaching, even if it costs you your family. Do you still love me most supremely? Right? And so you think about the way that Jesus is presenting that. 
to these people at this particular time to these disciples. And he's asking for that sort of love and commitment. And he's elevating himself. In fact, he brings it home even further by saying, whoever takes up their cross to follow me or does not take up their cross to follow me is not worthy of me. So this is a really powerful but interesting statement. I want to make sure that we understand the, the, the weight with which Jesus has just brought this into the conversation. First thing that I want us to see is that within the rabbinical circle, right, in the Judaic world, this relationship between rabbi and disciple, teacher and student, master and servant, it was not uncommon, right, it was not uncommon to see the rabbi or the master as more important than, than the disciple's father, right, that you would, you would kind of put your loyalty and allegiance to the, to the rabbi as opposed to even your own father. That was somewhat commonplace. And so Jesus is kind of following in culture by referencing that love, right? But, but what was different here is that in that point in time, a disciple still had their own personal ambitions, right? That the, that the disciple could still pursue their own self-interest, their own field, and they could eventually leave their disciple, their mentor, their, their rabbi, whatever, to go their own way after a season of learning. You weren't expected to surrender your own personal ambitions and passions. And so what Jesus just did is not just confirm, no, you need to love me more than your father, but then he says, actually, the sort of loyalty I want is loyalty unto death. See, we see this reference to the cross. You and I read it, and we know that Jesus is about to give his life on the cross. We know that he's about to sacrifice. And so we read that, and it carries a certain weight and undeniable importance. The disciples didn't know that at the time. They hadn't seen him in his crucifixion yet. But they still would have known the cross to be a symbol of execution. There was an undeniable message. My desire for your loyalty to me, Jesus would say, is loyalty unto death. And that was unlike anything a rabbi would say at this point in time. Would you be willing to die even for me? That's the undeniable call that Jesus is extending, not just to his disciples, but to you and me. It's a reminder that this journey is costly. What's it costing us? What's it costing you? And that the fundamental core of that question, what Jesus is saying, because it's going to manifest itself differently from all of us, is that at its core is what Jesus is saying is die to self. There's this impulse that you have in your heart, in your life, to to self-actualization, self-preservation, self-gratification, self, self, self. And so don't spend your whole existence trying to find life for yourself because in the end, you'll lose it. But if you lose your life, if you die to yourself, For me and for my sake, Jesus says, then that's where you'll find it. Can't we all testify to that on some level? Haven't we all experienced that, that that part of the daily challenge, the, the lifelong challenge of following Jesus is that we have those impulses towards self gratification, self actualization, and we will spend all of our energy and resources is time and ideas and money to go after those things, those things that we think will make us happy and fulfill us, right? Man, I want this right job. I want this perfect family. I want the two-story house, the white picket fence. I want the notoriety. I want the wealth. I want the luxury. I want all these different things because that's where I'm going to be 
happy. And we will give so much time and energy and even obtain all of it and still come up empty and still have that hole in our heart that has yet to be filled. And the dichotomy, the paradox of the gospel is that what Jesus says is actually it's when you surrender. It's when you choose not to be served, but to serve. When you choose to look at the interest of others above your own. It's when you actually die to yourself. That's when you find life. That's where you find fulfillment. And so let me ask you, church, what are you giving your life to? What is it that you're seeking? Are you running after all these things that in the end are gonna have you come up empty? Are you willing to deny yourself in every capacity to go and serve our King in a way that will only bring you the fulfillment that you truly deserve and that you truly desire? That's the choice. And Jesus has laid it out right in front of us. What's it costing us? What are we willing to do to acknowledge our love and our allegiance to our King? Would you be willing to forego your dreams and your plans? Would you be willing to leave your job and go across the world? Go through years of language acquisition and cultural adaptation for Jesus? Would you be willing to maybe stretch yourself a little bit and go into different parts of a community and find people from different cultures and places, befriending a refugee family, finding an international student, as awkward and as inconvenient as it may be? Would you be willing to take those chances to have those conversations with people at work, people in your classes and in school, with your own family members, with your own neighbors, Letting them know of this Jesus, how you met him, why you love him, and what he can do for them. Are you willing to do everything you can to acknowledge him and to point to the greatness of our Savior? It's a question that only you and I can ask personally and answer privately. But man, if we all aspire to what it is that Jesus has laid out for us, what can happen collectively as one church is nothing short of significant. And so that's my hope for us, is that God would challenge each of us personally today and that we would consider not just creation, but all those who have gone before us to see all the evidences of people that cry out for his glory. And if these things that are surrounding us, creation itself is crying out for his glory, then so should we. That if Jesus himself would stop at nothing, dying to his own self, dying to the point of the cross so that you and I could know his radical love, seeking every heart and every soul for every corner of the globe. If that's the sort of love he demonstrated for you and me, then it's absolutely the sort of love we should demonstrate to him. And so let's make that our commitment this morning, that in the same way that he has loved us, we will love him and we will love others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this challenging text. We thank you for the chance to, to once again be called to something that is bigger than ourselves. Father, we thank you for calling us to something that is not always comfortable and convenient. And so if there are things that we have done in our own lives, Father, that create 
false expectations of what it is that you're wanting from us, if, you have, if we have in any way created a sense of a life that pursues comfort and convenience more than a pursuit of you, Father, help us to repent of those things. Father, I pray that we would be a church that is continually sending people out to the hardest places in the world. Father, that we would be sent out to, to our own communities, to our own streets, to our own families, but even to the corners of the earth. Father, that our hearts would break for those who have yet to hear, those that have had yet to have a chance to confess their love for you. God, help us to see them as you see them. And so, Father, may we take this moment to commit such a love and a loyalty to you. And when we see the evidences of your glory all around us, we will be inspired to be a part, to forever sing your praises and to go wherever you would send us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.